0: hppodcraft.com I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking. To tell a good story of the joke kind and to tell it well was the surest road to his favor. Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers. They all took after the king too in being large, corpulent, oily men, as well as inimitable jokers. Whether people grow fat by joking, or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes to a joke, I have never been quite able to determine, but certain it is that a lean joker is a rara avis in terrace.
1: I hate to disagree with Edgar Allan Poe right off the bat, but obviously he has never seen the comedy. Of Rita Rutner. She is thin and she is a genius, so suck on that Poe.
2: Whoa, we're only one minute into November, and you're already insulting the master? Yeah. After all of the revenge and murder we're going to be reading this month, you might regret that decision. Oh no. And you might regret it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary <laughs> Podcast. I'm Chad Fife.
1: And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon.
2: This week's reader is Bruce Green. Bruce is back. We haven't heard from Bruce in a very long time. Glad to have him back on. Thanks for reading for us, Bruce.
1: We've got a sponsor this week. Yes! J.R. Hamantashen is back with his new collection of short stories called A Deep Horror. That was very nearly all.
2: J.R. Hamantashen's third collection of short stories delivers more inimitable dark fiction. These are 11 tales of macabre horror filled with estrangement, honor, wonder, terror, delusion, pity, desperation and perseverance.
1: I've read this bad boy and it is rock solid. JR has a way of making the normal seem horrific and frightening.
2: If you'll recall, we've talked about JR's other fiction collections in the past and people have picked them up and wrote in and been very pleased with them. This book builds on the themes and motifs from those collections and it really nails it.
1: One of the stories that I really liked in this one is called No one cares, but I tried. It takes place in an office, and it sort of introduces the idea of how people might really use a superpower if they had one, and how they would use it for evil. Maybe not necessarily evil, but just in a really crappy way that would serve their petty self-interests.
2: Just like you would do. You've admitted to that.
1: No, I think I would fully (laughs) turn evil.
2: Oh, you'd go fully evil. You just wouldn't Yeah, I think
1: I would be ruler of the earth. That would be my...
2: (laughs) But back to the book, I've been reading the stories in order. I'm almost done. I haven't read the novella at the end yet. Mm-hmm. I love the way the book kicks off with the story, Rococo Veins and Lurid Stains. I read the title. I thought, man, that's kind of a pretentious title. <laughs> and then the story itself calls it out right away. The protagonist <laughs> is a teenage girl, and she says... Rococo Veins and Lurid Saints sounds like a band I'd love unabashedly for a bit and then feel deeply embarrassed about once I went (laughs) off to college
1: and matured (laughs) in the way people are expected to do there's a lot of
2: humor in these things too but I'm telling you there's some stuff that's It's pretty disturbing and scary as well.
1: Well, this book also, like you were saying, this book ends with a novella. Uh, It's called I Will Soon Be Home and Never Need Anyone Ever Again. It's about a 14-year-old boy who's smart, but he's kind of a loner, and he's getting bullied at school. Then he makes a supernatural friend. And I don't want to get into any spoilers or details, but it it hooked me. It is a total page-turner. What I love about it is I didn't know where it was going. Like, it kept changing it up in ways that I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't okay. It makes sense. This is good. I'm into it. But what's yeah. going to happen? And with the end of it, I was completely surprised. So, Oh, great. Another rock-solid collection from J.R. Halmatasian pick up a deep horror that was very nearly awe on Amazon.
2: We've covered Poe stories uh, on the podcast plenty in the past. Yes. But in case you don't remember, Edgar Allan Poe was an American short story writer, poet, critic, and editor who was famous for his cultivation of mystery and the macabre Mm -hmm. He died, uh, they just had an anniversary of his death recently. He died on October 7th, 1849 at age 40. The cause of death was unknown and somewhat mysterious. Folks still speculate about it to this day. Sure do. We did Fall the House of Usher, I believe, Mask of the Red Death, Lygia, Man of the Crowd. But this Povember, I wanted to get into the nasty murderous ones that are a little more famous, actually. Yeah. So we'll be doing this story, uh, The Cask of Amontillado, The Telltale Heart, and The Premature Burial. This, month. this story first appeared in the March 17th, 1849 edition of The Flag of Our Union, a Boston-based newspaper. It originally carried the full title Hop Frog or the Eight Chained Orangutans.
1: Uh-huh. Uh,
2: so it was published close to his death, actually. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He, died, he died later that year. In his lifetime, Poe is probably best known, not as necessarily an author in his own right, but as a literary critic, Mm. because he could be really harsh. He was kind of a hatchet man, Mm -hmm. and a lot of folks think that these revenge stories, this one and The Cask of Amontillado, which we're going to do next week, these stories themselves are a form of uh, literary revenge of huh. the sort around the time of the story's writing poe had been pursuing relationships with sarah helen whitman and nancy richmond yes and members of literary circles in new york city were spreading gossip about this inciting scandals saying that there were some alleged improprieties mm. Ticking poe off and at the center of this gossip was a woman named elizabeth F. ellett whose affections poe had previously scorned ah she was into him he rejected her so she started spreading some rumors among her Fancy society group or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some critics think that Ellot may be represented by the king himself, with his seven counselors representing Margaret Fuller, Hiram Fuller, no relation, Thomas Dunn English, Anne Lynch Boda, Anna Blackwell, Ermina Jane Locke, and Locke's husband. Hmm. I don't know where they're getting all of that, but that's it's the theory. Very specific. It's very specific. Those are supposedly the people that are represented in the story. And I got to tell you, I'd be really freaked out if I read the story and found out it was about me. You know. <laughs> Well, so just I'm saying, watch it with those Rita Rudner cracks. This Poe might return from the grave and write a revenge story about you.
1: Look, man, he's talking about slender comedians not being funny. I gotta defend.
2: Criticize me, will you? Let's see how you like it when I have this character buried alive in black cats. Ha ha! Revenge is sweet. What? <laughs> I don't know whether Hop Frog is actually an act of revenge or not. It doesn't really matter because it's just a great story. Yeah, I read it first in uh, freshman English class when I was in high school.
1: Oh, whoa, really?
2: Yeah, I think everybody in the class read it actually, which was rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but everybody was interested. I mean, if you want to get kids excited about literature, throw in some murders. That's that's what turns them all on. Yeah. And a- as a matter of fact, last time I was back home, I visited Mr. Hansky, uh, my high school English teacher. Uh, who also was on our show on Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. appeared on there, if you if you recall. He gave me a copy of my old textbook, which I read this out of. It's called Insight, Literature of Imagination. It's a cool book. It's full of short stories separated into sections by character archetypes. There's the man of skill, the champion, the man of love, the leader, the man of piety. And the first section is called The Trickster. Ah. The trickster archetype, it's a Jungian archetype, and Hop Frog is the first story they have in there to exemplify. Mm-hmm. The trickster archetype, which is the trickster uh, slash clown is incarnated as a clever, mischievous man or creature who tries to survive the dangers and challenges of the world using trickery and deceit as a defense. Mm. He also is known for entertaining people as a clown does. So Bugs Bunny, for example, would fall into this archetype. Yep. But it's existed as long as storytelling. It's in myth. You know, if you think of Loki both in Marvel Comics and Nordic myth, Uh, Shakespeare's Puck, uh, Puss in Boots, even Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones, I think, is a good example of the trickster archetype. And some say Doctor Who actually fits into the trickster archetype as well, the Doctor, because he doesn't use violence to solve his problems or anything like that. He usually has something up his sleeve, right? That's right, yeah. There was also a hair metal band in the late 80s called Trickster with an X. (laughs) But uh, we, we really don't need to get into that. Let's, so let's get into Hot Frog instead.
1: <laughs> the story begins uh, talking about the king who loves a good laugh. Uh, he seems to be more of a Three Stooges kind of guy and less of an Ernie Kovacs sort of fellow. <laughs> yeah. He likes practical jokes and silliness, a lot of physical comedy, not so much the clever stuff.
2: I, I love the phrasing. To tell a good story of the joke kind and to tell it well was the surest road to his favor. Like, wait a minute. Is this one of those stories of the joke kind? (laughs) It's just weird phrasing. I love a a good story of the joke kind. (laughs) But there's also this repetition of the word joke in that opening, Mm -hmm. which I think is intentional. He uses some form of that word eight times in the opening paragraph. Uh, For some reason to me, it makes me feel like the king's not really that funny of a guy. Right. It's too insistent. Like when someone's being an asshole at a party and people are like oh you just don't get his weird sense of humor he's really a crack up mm. no he's not <laughs> like they have to keep insisting or, or the way like david brent in the office would <laughs> right he would have to keep letting people know that he was a funny person right because it wasn't obvious yes <laughs> so he'd say see that monkey up there i'm hilarious right <laughs> so it, it it gave me that impression that the king is like that
1: totally yeah yeah, yeah i see that our unnamed narrator says that At the time of the tale, jesters were kind of out of fashion, but this king of comedy Still kept one around.
2: There's some insight into what types of things he finds funny. It says, practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones. So, as you said, he's not so much about the wit. No. He's kind of one of the worst kind of jokers. You know, like practical jokes can be fun. I've definitely participated in them. But at the end of the day, you really are just laughing at somebody.
1: You're tricking somebody and then laughing at them being tricked.
2: What you hope is that the trick is clever in some way. It addresses something about the person mm-hmm. and then brings that out. But most of those are just mean. You know, like I had an office mate. Who, all the time, I'd be walking by her and she'd point at the floor while I was walking and go, look out. And then I'd, I'd look down and kind of dodge out of the way and she'd laugh and go, gotcha. <laughs> what What was the joke? <laughs> look at that idiot doesn't want to get hurt. You know? It's also I got, like the thing that you're pointing out is that I shouldn't trust you. <laughs>
1: like, Absolutely.
2: That's the real punchline here. Oh, well, I'm such a fool for believing what this woman said. <laughs> Anyway, this king is so into comedy, he's still got this jester dressed all in motley.
1: Yes, that's what the, the bells and the hat and the little curly mm-hmm. shoes and all that business. <laughs> all right. This jester is called Hopfrog, and to the king, he is a, a threefer. Mm-hmm. He's not just a jester, but he's also a dwarf, and he's disabled. Hilarious. Which I guess makes a better jester or dwarf, I'm not sure.
2: Well, it's funny because it says, you know, most kings would have a jester and a dwarf. So he's like, I got it all in one guy.
1: (laughs) So the name was given at his baptism. The seven ministers agreed that's what he should be called. These seven ministers are the king's entourage, kind of his (laughs) frat boy yes men that do whatever, you know, they laugh at his jokes, they help him with his pranks, all that stuff. It says here, Hopfrog could only get along by a sort of interjectional gait, something between a leap and a wriggle, a movement that afforded illimitable amusement, and of course, consolation to the king his disability was with his legs and he had trouble walking however he had very strong arms and he was extremely dexterous so he could climb they say like a squirrel or a monkey but he wasn't so good on the floor
2: it's a talent that's going to come into play later on yes but but your sympathies are obviously already with hop frog because the poor guy, the way they de- the way he describes him walking, mm-hmm. causes him pain just to walk across the floor. These people are just laughing at him for it. Yeah. But I do like that it also demonstrates how disability can lead to unexpected strength in other areas. Exactly. The upper arm strength he has. Yeah.
1: So Hopfrog is from a far off land and supposedly from a barbarous people who were conquered. Hopfrog and this other dwarf girl were given to the king by the conquering general. The girl was named Trapetta. She was considered beautiful because of her proportions. She was a, a great dancer. So she was adored by the court and the king while hop frog was often ridiculed of course however hop frog and trepetta were very close friends and due to their origins and their shared captivity they were very close and since she had the favor of the court she would often use her influence to help hop frog any chance that she got for some reason the king decides that he wants to have a masquerade
2: some kind of grand state occasion It's not specified.
1: And Hopfrog, since he's super clever and creative, is going to be integral to making the occasion a spectacle.
2: Yes, he's known to be inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters, and arranging costumes. Uh, you know, when everybody wanted to do a pajama party, he was like, how about a backward pajama party? <laughs> he's always putting a little twist on the event. You know? <laughs> sure, we can do an 80s-themed prom. 1680s. <laughs> Let's hang some witches in the cafeteria and get it going, guys. <laughs> That's him exactly. That's Hot
1: Frog. On the night of the masquerade, the hall is all done up in this very glorious fashion under Trepetta's supervision. Now, most people have prepared for this masquerade weeks, if not months in advance. But the king and his seven ministers, they haven't done anything. <laughs>
2: it says probably they found it difficult on account of being so fat to make up their minds. <laughs>
1: Trepeta and hopfrog Frog, they get a summons that evening, the evening of the masquerade, to see the king. When they get there, the king is drunk and in a bad mood. He demands that Hopfrog drink some wine. Unfortunately, wine is not good for Hopfrog. When he drinks, he kind of gets a little crazy and he becomes anxious. He gets freaked out. The king's just insisting that he does it, so he does. And the king could see him getting a little weirded out after he drinks, like it affects him immediately. Yeah. The king tells him, to drink to absent friends, and this makes Hopfrog cry a little bit. And of course, the king thinks that this is hilarious, as do the ministers.
2: Right. It also, it happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday that day that he's making him drink the the wine as well. So when he says, drink for your absent friends, I think there's an, uh, it's his birthday and he's missing people from his homeland. It says, a poor fellow, his large eyes gleamed rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table and looked round upon the company with a half insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of the king's joke. Joke is not quotes.
1: <laughs> Wasn't there some research that was done that said that Poe might have had some kind of bad aversion to alcohol? People t- typically think they had a really bad drinking problem. But yes. wasn't there somebody that did some research that thought that maybe he was highly allergic to alcohol and if he had like a little bit of it, it really messed them up?
2: Yeah, there's all kinds of theories about that. And, and one suggests that it's it's not that he was a heavy drinker. It's just that all alcohol really affected him. Although for severely alcoholic people, a weird thing does happen where tolerance builds and builds and builds over years, but they find this often with like elderly alcoholics that it then plummets. So even one drink will get the person drunk. I don't know if it's because oh. of the amount of... Sp- alcohol built up in the system or what it is, but it is in later stage alcoholism uh, oftentimes people get a little more susceptible to it actually instead of... Mm. So I, I personally think it might have more to do
1: with that. After all that, the king demands to know what hopfrog Frog came up with for their costumes. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, makes hopfrog Frog laugh. Uh, of course on the night of the masquerade, that The king is throwing. He finally decides that he needs some kind of costume. He also demands that it be totally awesome because he's the king and he's got to totally show up everybody. It's got to be something that nobody's ever seen before. And the king can see Hop Frog get a bit bent out of shape about this whole idea. He's like, oh, man, you're going to make me do this tonight. We could have worked on this sooner.
2: It can be be good, cheap, or fast,
1: king. (laughs) You can't have all three. So since the king sees Hop Frog's angry, he goes, you know, you need to drink more wine and loosen up. And at this point, Trapeta goes to the king and begs him to just, you know, back off Hop Frog. The alcohol's not good for him, it messes him up. But the king, being a total asshole, is angry that she dare tell him what to do, so he shoves her to the ground and then he throws his wine in her face.
2: I've probably read this story 20 times. I still get mad when
1: that oh, happens. Oh yeah. I hate him. She gets up and goes back to her seat at the end of the table.
0: There was a dead silence for about half a minute during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room.
1: Now the king wants to know why Hopfrog is making that noise and Hopfrog says, I'm not making that noise. It must be that parrot outside rubbing its beak up against the cage. And the king goes, oh yeah, yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) I could have sworn it was you grinding your teeth, but no, That why would you be grinding your teeth? That doesn't make any sense. So, Hot Frog laughs, and then when he laughs, the king also laughs, because he's just one of those guys, if somebody's laughing, he's got to be laughing, even if he doesn't know why people are laughing. (laughs) And his ministers, if the king's laughing, they got to be laughing, so they all start laughing. The writing is so good here. I mean, Hot Frog was definitely grinding his teeth, and he is angry as sin at this moment, But the economy of the writing is just so amazing and so much is communicated with so little.
2: Oh, I know. Well, and also if somebody is grinding their teeth so hard that you can hear it in the room, they're angry. (laughs) I think it's a pretty quick way to demonstrate just how angry he is. Yeah. But when he stops grinding his teeth, he laughs and it says he displayed a set of large, powerful and very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. Mm. It's kind of like that moment in Unforgiven when Clint Eastwood's like, "All right, I'm going to drink this whiskey and kill everybody." <laughs>
1: <You know? laughs> right,
2: I'm giving over to what I would usually try to resist.
1: So Hopfrog says that he has an idea for a costume. I cannot tell you what was the association of idea, but just. After your majesty had struck the girl and thrown wine in her face, just after your majesty had done this, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside of the window, <laughs> there came into my mind a capital diversion. Again, we know Hopfrog is saying, you're being a total prick, has given me this idea of how I can finally give you what you deserve. But the king, yep. of course, is completely oblivious. So Hopfrog goes on to say, uh, it's from my home country, but oh man, you need eight people to do this bit because it's hilarious but it, it requires eight people and the king goes hello me and my ministers were eight guys and Hopfrog goes ah yes okay this works it's called eight chained orangutans hopfrog frog says this thing is awesome for scaring women all right and then the king's like whoa i get to scare women this is great i'm in what tell me some yeah. more about this and of course the ministers are up for it as well Hopfrog says everyone in court will think that they're real beasts and they're going to be terrified. And we got to put you all in chains because it'll seem like you escaped. You know, you're escaped animals, and you're all running around. Of course, we have to make sure that the guards are unarmed, because they're going to attack you, and we can't have them in on the joke, because they got to look scared if everybody else is going to get scared. Yeah. So the king's like, oh man, this is brilliant. Hopfrog, you're coming up with some gold here. <laughs> and he goes, well, what do we have to do? And Hopfrog goes, don't worry, I'm going to arrange everything, I'll take care of it.
2: You know, a lot of hay is made about Poe's fear of being buried alive, and how that plays into his fiction. Mm-hmm. Or even his alcoholism, like as we just discussed here, uh, that's kind of explored in Hopfrog's character. What is it about his fear of a Orangutans, because <laughs> in the if you think of it in the murders in the Rue morgue, that's the shocking conclusion of that detective oh, right, story yeah. that the murderer is actually an orangutan.
1: Yeah. So I was
2: wondering, I, in my head, I imagine that Poe. Oh yeah, I'll go to the zoo with you, and he wanders in, and he sees that orangutan, and he says F- this, and gets out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> that thing scared me. I can't go back in there. But why them? But it seems strange to me. Why orangutans? You know, because to me they're like the hippies of the primate world. They don't yeah, seem
1: they're pretty at all. chill as primates go. Like chimps, no way, man. You don't want to. No ever deal with a chimp. <laughs> no. Gorillas are can be really rough, but they're not as bad. Like, chimps will just rip your faces off, whereas gorillas will yeah. display a bit more before they start ripping off your face. And I don't even think orangutans rip off anybody's face, as far as I know. I could be wrong.
2: In the zoo, it says, don't worry about getting your face ripped off. <laughs> These guys are cool. Okay, good. It's one of the first things you learn about orangutans. They're, they don't rip faces off.
1: So, the king and his ministers were first put into tight fitting clothes over which tar was put onto.
2: Right. That's the first stage in Hop Rock's costuming. He admits that people don't really know what orangutans look like at this period of time, or the narrator says that. Mm-hmm. So, it's okay. They could take some liberties to make these guys look even more monstrous. Although, in my head, they all look like Chaka from Land of the Lost, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't very scary, but apparently they are gonna look horrifying yes. once this all comes on.
1: Yeah, someone jokes that they should put feathers on, but Hot Frog says no. The illusion must be perfect. And to look like real orangutans, we're gonna use flu. And I guess flu is just another word for flax. So they're all chained together around the waist in kind of a strange pattern, like the way that the chains are wrapped around them, but Hot Frog insists this is the way they used to tie up chimps back in his homeland. So the main hall is very large and has a very high ceiling and there's a window up high in this chamber, but the whole room is illuminated by this big chandelier because it's obviously the middle of the night.
2: Yeah. And you know, the principle of Chekhov's gun, if you see a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the second or third act. Otherwise, don't show it. As I was reading this, even though they removed the chandelier, I was thinking that chandeliers are kind of the same way. Like If any attention is called to a chandelier in a story, that thing is going to... Swing down and kill somebody, right. or somebody's going to have to swing across the room on it. You know, yeah. the chandelier is going to be operational in right. some way. Here it's removed, but the chain that it was hanging from it's cru- is crucially still there. Right. Trippetta has been in charge of all the decorating, but Hopfrog did make some strong suggestions that she implemented, mm-hmm. the chandelier removal being one of them, because he said, you know, the wax and drippings might ruin all the rich dresses of the guests. So mm-hmm. that was his justification for it. Why don't we put a ton of additional sconces in the hall? There's like some 50 or 60 candles burning in this place now.
1: Mm -hmm. The eight orangutans wait patiently until midnight uh, when they would make their explosive appearance. And
2: Poe, of course, has a thing for midnight. That's when the Red Death appears in the masquerade, in the Mask of the Red Death, uh, in the Telltale Heart. As we'll see, that's the time in which the guy enters the old man's bedroom each night, and of course the raven taps on the narrator's door at midnight, the poem The Raven.
1: And then bam! They all come out and lots of people seem to think that they are absolutely real beasts. Ladies scream, the king Loves it.
2: Yes, they stumble and fall quite a bit because the chains are messing them up. But luckily, as we stated before, the king had all weapons removed from the room because otherwise some of these folks might start attacking the quote-unquote monsters. Right. The king also has the doors locked. He, he ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance uh-huh. so nobody can get out of there either. <laughs> oh, wow. That was at Frog's suggestion. And Hopfrog not only said, you should do that, but leave the keys with me and I'll take care of it later. So right. <laughs> nobody has a way to get out of here.
1: So as they run around scaring people, they get close to the chain that's attached to the chandelier. And Hopfrog sneaks up and attaches their chain to the chandelier's chain. Hopfrog throws the lever and the king and his ministers go up.
2: I, well, it's something like that. It's actually, I don't think you're able to even know what mechanism he set up. Yeah. The chain lowers uh, almost on its own. I think he might, Trepeta might be helping him out at this point because it says uh, by some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward. So somebody's helping him out or he's got a mechanism set up.
1: Oh, okay.
2: And if you can imagine it, so the guys are chained in a circle and there's two chains running through the circle like a cross. Mm-hmm. And he hitched the middle of that to the chandelier chain. So when they went up, they all suddenly crash into each other face to face.
1: So Hopfrog yells out to the crowd, leave them to me. I think I might know them. And he climbs up high on the chain and he crawls around pretending to try and figure out who they are. When he ascends, he grabs one of those torches, using it to examine the orangutans. Now everyone is laughing, including the eight pretenders, and Hopfrog is playing up his investigator role. Mm -hmm. He's doing a performance here. And the crowd, they're eating it up. Uh, The torch in Hopfrog's hand is getting closer and closer to the king and his men.
2: Meanwhile, the chain keeps going up in the air. It says 30 feet or more. So they're really high up there. Hopfrog is using that upper body strength that is his talent. Yes. He's able to stay on this thing while it's going into the air. Yeah,
1: and and move quickly. He's able to, because now he's sort of in his element. He's up high on the chains and he could totally climb up, down, swing around. He's fast. He has the advantage here. It soon gets quiet as the king can hear that sound, that grinding sound, which was not a bird, but the grating (laughs) of Hopfrog's teeth. And Hopfrog has this crazed look on his face. Hopfrog brings the flame close to the king and he says, I can see who this is. And he lets the torch touch the flax, which lights up and catches flame. And then they all catch flame almost immediately because they're covered in tar and flax. Everyone starts freaking out. But Hopfrog, he climbs higher and away from the flames, and he has one little last bit to perform.
0: The dwarf seized his opportunity and once more spoke. "'I now see distinctly,' he said, "'what manner of people these maskers are. "'They are a great king and his seven privy counselors, "'a king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl.' and his seven counselors, who abet him in the outrage. As for myself, I am simply Hopfrog, the jester, and this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Trapetta, stationed on the roof of the saloon, had been the accomplice of her friend in his fiery revenge, and that, together, they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was seen again. And I see it of the story.
2: Awesome. They got away with it.
0: Yeah.
1: I like revenge stories.
2: I love revenge <laughs> stories. And I guess that's not even... So, I mean, why do you think that is? I think it's kind of an obvious thing.
1: Well, answer, because right? people are getting what they deserve. And it, it yeah. seems like a lot of bad people get away with being bad people. And having a little justice or vengeance, depending on how you want to classify it, makes the universe seem a little bit more fair.
2: Yeah. And I was making fun of Poe earlier about writing a story as a form of revenge against somebody i mean it seems funny to me because just don't read the story and it doesn't work you know yeah <laughs> but it's a cathartic experience but in the real world people who are terrible often get away with it oh yeah we use these types of stories to give us a, a thrill of justice yeah and the more you can build up the punishment of the hero the more effective that catharsis
1: yes poe really does that here i mean the guy, he makes him a disabled dwarf who's ridiculed over and over again. He takes it. It's not until Trippetta is disrespected and and harmed and ridiculed. That's the thing that pushes him over. It's not all the bad things that happen. So he's, not only does he just deserve it on his own, he's like a good guy. Like, he's sticking up for his friend. It's very sympathetic and and it's just good writing. Good job, Poe.
2: But that's relatable as well because there's a part of all of this that says, you know, when somebody's abusing you, there's a part of you that goes, I probably have this coming. Whether it's true or not, you Uh, know. But I'm not going to stand by and let somebody who is innocent have it, you know, yeah. be treated this way. Yeah. And I, I think that's really relatable.
1: There was reading, too, that there's kind of this theory that this story is a bit autobiographical in the way that Poe, like Hopfrog, he was taken from his home and presented to somebody else. So, you know, he had a wealthy foster father, John Allen, that, right, that raised right. him. You know, the part where it says, bearing a name not given at baptism, but conferred upon him and is susceptible to wine. Right. Poe was bothered by those who urged him to drink, despite a single glass of wine making him drunk.
2: Yeah, it was something that people definitely wanted him to do because of his reputation.
1: Right. Now, there's also this thing on Wikipedia that I, I read that said that this story might be based off of... Speaking
2: of drinking, Wikipedia.
1: There's also this idea this... That Poe might have based the story off an actual event in the court of Charles VI of France, uh, and this was back in uh, 1393. At the suggestion of a Norman squire, the king and five others dressed as wild men... In quotes, in highly flammable costumes, which were made of pitch and flax. Uh, four of the men were set on fire and died, and the king and the fifth men also were burned, but they didn't die. They, they weren't killed in the whole thing. It's possible that Poe might have read about this story and it was kind of an inspiration.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty complicated and novel way to kill some characters. I'm sure he was grabbing little bits and pieces from all over the place. Oh, but yeah. Crazy that this, something like this actually did happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. You
2: know? I was reading an analysis of this story on interestingliterature.com, and it says uh, Hopfrog can be analyzed as a story about tyranny, slavery, and revolution. So there are some broader themes in here as well. Uh, It was published in 1849, one year after the revolutions of 1848 across Europe. Uh, 1848 was also the year that Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto whose rousing final words inspired the slogan workers of the world unite oh. you have nothing to lose but your chains and chains play the symbolic role in hop frog title characters metaphorical chains keeping in bondage and servitude are replaced by the literal chains he places around his oppressors the punishment he exacts on the king and his ministers incorporates the historical act of tarring and feathering which has strong suggestions of mob rule and reinforces the idea of hop frog's revenge being a sort of one man or assuming Trippetta's involvement, which I do, mm-hmm. one man and one woman, revolution, in which the tyrannical ruling class is overthrown. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely, it has a, cl- a class element to it as well.
1: Well, we don't have any class here <laughs> on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: <laughs> no. But
1: our patrons do, and I'd like to thank some of them for being part of our team. Yes, I want to thank John Coles. Harrison Myers. Sean Minogue. Eric Wynn. Scott Lloyd. Augustine Hart. Red Retro Robots. brian atherton moros and kimberly
2: thanks kimberly i also want to thank our reader this week bruce green he's a great guy and an even better reader
1: yeah he's a great guy i miss him and also want to thank our sponsor again jr hamantashen's new collection of short stories a deep horror that was very nearly all
2: yes it is available in print or as an ebook we will link out in the show notes please pick it up read those short stories beast on them
1: i can't stress it enough i love these stories i love his writing style he is always evocative and thought-provoking and a uh, little bit creepy.
2: It's good stuff, and you guys will love it. Pick it up. Next week, we'll be talking about The Cask of Amontillado. Get your revenge boots on, because we're going to be doing a lot more of it. Yeah. <laughs> that, one's, that one's one of my favorites. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Povember. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
1: And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com.
0: hppodcraft.com.